0: We all knew COVID was coming. Since I've been here for 22 years, we've, we've had other tragedies, but nothing compared to COVID. I'm the kind of person who is on the ground, kind of rolling up my sleeves and doing the work that I asked my team to do. It was a new kind of leadership challenge, which was not a comfortable place to be. And I was also scared for my own safety. I'm Dr. Katherine Hockman the Division Director for Hospital Medicine at NYU Langone Health.
1: When COVID struck New York City in the spring of 2020, NYU Langone Medical Center was full of sick patients and overwhelmed providers caring for them. Outside the hospital, family members were desperate for information, which was in short supply. It didn't take long for Dr. Katherine Hawkman to connect the dots and the people.
0: It dawned on me, This was not business as usual. In no time, flat, we had over 100 medical students, 65 radiologists. And then the dermatologists came, the urologists came, the orthopedic surgeons came, the pathologists came, all these groups of people. We had about 150 attending physicians from all different specialties come and want to help.
1: From SiriusXM and NYU Langone Health, this is Vital Signs, where medicine is made personal. I'm your host, Rose Reed. Dr. Catherine Hockman is a hospitalist. The term first appeared in a 1996 article in the New England Journal of Medicine. And since then, it has become the fastest growing specialty in the United States. There are currently around 50,000 hospitalists practicing medicine in the US. But early on at NYU, there was just one.
0: Back in 2004, there was one person that was me. As a hospitalist, I took care of patients who didn't have primary care doctors. So at that time, that only constituted 5% of the patients. So it was my job to grow the program because I knew that if an internist stays in the hospital and is there to speak to the care manager and social worker and the family and have family meetings, these are things that, for the most part, my outpatient colleagues didn't really have the time to do. My job was to be in the hospital and to really be, you know, caring for these patients while they were here.
1: Dr. Hockman knew that if she was going to grow the hospitalist program at NYU Langone, she needed to show the value of hospitalists. I've
0: always loved numbers, and I knew the numbers were going to save me here and the program because we were able to show hospitalist versus non-hospitalist are observed to expected length of stay, our readmission rate, our quality metrics, were all at least the same, if not much better, than our outpatient colleagues. And that was an important revelation.
1: It was important enough that Dr. Hawkman knew she had to start speaking up.
0: I needed to be able to justify new people in the program. And as we were gaining more patients, we needed more physicians to care for these patients. But I, so I had to make an argument and my argument always came back down to the numbers. It's somewhat intimidating actually. Everybody asks you to justify why you want more people, and then you you know, you share the numbers. I felt like I earned my chops back then because, you know, many times I was the certainly the youngest person at the table, many times I was the only woman at the table, and I successfully was able to argue that we needed more and more people to grow the program. So very quickly the program grew. And I went from being just the first hospitalist, one person's not a program, but very quickly, you know, we had four. And then very quickly we doubled and we doubled again.
1: And now we have 34 people in our program. Doctors are busy people and hospitals are busy places. It can be easy to miss the forest for the trees. As Dr. Hawkman grew into her role and grew the hospitalist program at NYU Langone Health, she understood how her team could become an organizing force.
0: So people were really just working in silos in the early days. You know, doctors were doing their thing, nurses were doing their thing, care manager and social worker, and there was really no team, there was no formal way of getting together. There was so much waste, and I could see that being a first year attending here. Even as a resident, you could see all the waste that was happening, not just in NYU, but in all of medicine. Things like getting labs every day. You don't need that necessarily. Or have a conversation with a patient about what he or she wants, and then guide your therapies based on what the patient wants, not based on what you want. And a lot of the waste came from inefficient structure on rounds. We put structure in This was with a lot of very smart people uh, working with me to help create a structure around teamwork so that now if you were to go up to any of the medicine wards... It's almost 9.30 now, okay, in about 20 minutes or so. You will have all the doctors and nurses and the care managers and social workers and the physical therapists all in a huddle, and they will be talking about each and every patient, all the patients who have hot spots, people who have different lines and tubes and who's in pain and who's refusing their VTE prophylaxis. All this is ready to go. What I always tell my team is to go into huddle, you have to be on your A-game. You can't waffle into huddle and not know what's happening with your patient. You may not have the diagnosis cinched at that point, but you have to have a plan to get that diagnosis cinched. Because, you know, your patient's in the hospital, they don't want to be here, and you have an obligation to find out their diagnosis and get them treated expeditiously and properly. You know, and I always tell my team here, you have to slow down to speed up. That's important. So when you sit down with your patient for the first time, it really matters how you introduce yourself. You know, you really have to say, hi, I'm Dr. Hockman, I'm the attending physician. I'm gonna be the one looking after you. I'm so happy to be doing so. You have to be able to create connections, create trust in a very short amount of time. So you can do that simply by saying, I've spoken with your primary care doctor and let him or her know you're here Now, medicine changes so quick. By the time you leave Huddle, maybe things have changed, but at least for that moment, we're on the same page.
1: Dr. Hockman and her colleagues developed what is known as a system. A hospital is a hospital, of course, a place where people go when they're sick or if they need surgery or to give birth. It's also a place full of systems and some work better than others. Recognizing if and why a system works or where a new system is needed is another critical job of a hospitalist.
0: The hospitalists, in addition to taking great care of patients, are very much into systems thinking, quality proven in the hospital, patient safety in the hospital. We are, as part of a definition of a hospitalist, if you will, stewards of the hospital. It's our job to make sure that this wonderful hospital that we're a part of, this wonderful hospital system that we're a part of, that we're, we're using these resources wisely. And that doesn't mean we're trying to be stingy with patients who come in, but we want to make sure that the right test is done. And if that right test is an expensive MRI, then we're going to do it. But if the same information can be obtained by a CAT scan, well, we should do that. We are stewards of the hospital and we have to care for the hospital just like we care for our patients. And that means really taking inventory of what works well and what doesn't work well sometimes. So all of my hospitalists and I, we are always on the scout out for things that maybe are not working well.
1: In some instances, that can mean turning yourself in.
0: A few years back, a resident Put in, it's called a PSI. So it's a, a patient safety indicator. It's basically a, a mechanism that you enter into the computer if something isn't working well. And it raises attention. So this person had the courage to put in a PSI on himself. And what he did in error was that he discharged a patient on oral antibiotics, but with a PIC line. So a PIC line is for patients who require intravenous antibiotics. You should never discharge a patient with a PIC line if you're giving them oral antibiotics. So this was a mistake. This was a big no-no. But he had the courage to put a PSI on himself. So this raised a lot of awareness. And again, this is a no-blame culture. So my first reaction towards him was, thank you. You did such a brave thing. And we realized that we were putting in pick lines on way too many people. It wasn't just this person. It was just way too many people. This led to a big quality improvement initiative where we created a big educational campaign. And to cut a long story short, we reduced the number of pick lines by about 70%. And with that, we reduced the number of pick line days by about the same amount, 70%. And we reduced our infections and et cetera, et cetera. So this was a fantastic outcome from somebody who, again, had the gumption to make himself vulnerable. So we're all about that. That's a prime example. So if you have a bunch of eyes and ears on the ground and everyone's putting in PSIs, well, that's caring for your hospital system. And that's very important. And that's what hospital medicine is all about.
1: Hospitals prepare for, and often simulate, catastrophic events, in part to test how the systems in place will hold up during an emergency. As a practicing physician at a busy New York City hospital, Dr. Hawkman has experienced her own share of actual emergencies. Since I've been here for
0: 22 years, we've had other tragedies. I remember being in the cardiac care unit in Bellevue, and I happened to be on call on September 10th, overnight. So now you're on to September 11th, which we all know is a beautiful Tuesday morning.
2: It's early this Tuesday morning, the 11th of September, 2001.
0: And I was with my wonderful attending, I'll never forget him, Dr. Rich Levin. We started making rounds, and you start in bed one, and then you go to the end. And by the time we got to bed four, the interns noticed that the plane had flown into the Trade Center.
1: We have a
3: breaking news story to tell you about. Apparently, a plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center here in New York City. It happened just a few moments ago.
0: So that was obviously, you know, a terrible time.
3: Devastating as it unfolded, but only now, hours later, under the harsh lights of rescue vehicles, is the true horrifying breadth of the terror becoming clear. Before it is over, the casualty figures will be numbing, and few in the city will be untouched by what happened today.
0: Fast forward, you know, we had uh, many uh, worry with Hurricane Irene.
3: We are witnessing
2: history. Rarely before has a hurricane barreled forward with so many major American cities in her path.
0: That was in 2011, when we actually evacuated everything. We are today issuing a mandatory evacuation order for all New Yorkers that are at greatest risk of damage relating to Irene. And then the next year, we had Hurricane Sandy, and we decided, oh, let's shelter in place.
3: Sandy brings potentially an extra 6 to 12 feet of sea and river flow that could fill low-lying areas of Manhattan like a basin.
0: And that was a different leadership challenge, because at that point as we were closed, I had to move my team out to many other local hospitals. So that was a a different kind of challenge. So the point is, we've had these crazy challenges, but nothing compared to COVID.
2: Breaking news tonight, the U.S. reaching another grim milestone. Deaths in the U.S. now well over 3,000. The toll now higher than the 9-11 attacks. In New York City, a sea of ambulances arriving. Medical workers rushing to the epicenter. The doctors and nurses being infected themselves. Over 200 in New York City. The growing crisis on the front line.
1: NYU Langone Medical Center, the hospital where Dr. Hawkman has practiced medicine for her entire career, the place she looks after as a devoted hospitalist, was transformed in the earliest days of the pandemic. So
0: we all knew COVID was coming. So you know, I remember this must have been in early March before we had our first case, maybe late February where I had Dr. Mike Phillips, who's our chief epidemiologist. I wanted him to come up and show us how to appropriately don and doff PPE. So, you know, we were sort of waiting for the storm. And then, you know, when the first case hit, it was that first case where we were all ready to go. And so that first patient came. I remember the first hospitalist who happened to be on the ward's Dr. Ravi Kasiri, He was the first one up, so he cared for our first patient. And at the time, you know, we didn't have good testing. So a patient would come here and wait forever and ever and ever, and we couldn't get the test back. So we suspected COVID, but we didn't really know for several days. So these numbers of patients who came in with respiratory illness grew and grew and grew. Before long, we had basically converted the entire hospital into a COVID hospital. There were no other diagnoses being admitted.
1: By the first week of April in 2020, NYU Langone's hospital system was admitting an average of 180 new COVID-19 patients each day. These patients demanded the attention of her entire team and then some. It was scary and new and consuming. Dr. Hockman and the other hospitalists worked around the clock on the front lines to save lives, sometimes at their own expense.
0: I remember I was on a call. I was in the middle of a two-week stretch in the end of March. And, you know, I, I sort of had this nagging cough, and I was very tired. And, um, you know, it was my husband who said, you know, Kathy, are you sure you don't have COVID? And I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just tired. You know, I'm like, we're exhausted. We're, we're stressed. But, of course, I had that nagging thought in the back of my head. So I had finished seeing patients. And we were all gowned up. We, you know, we were taking it very seriously. But I went and got a COVID test. And this was Sunday, I think the 22nd of March. And I, you know, was expecting it to be negative and to race back into the work the next day. Sure enough, it was positive. And that was a big sort of aha moment for me and my family. I felt okay. I had a cough, a lingering cough that stayed for weeks, frankly. I didn't have a fever and I was never, you know, short of oxygen, thankfully. But that took me out of commission.
1: If it isn't clear by now, Dr. Katherine Hockman is an in-the-mix, hands-on leader, the kind of general who directs the troops but also goes right into battle with them. Sitting still is not her strong suit.
0: It was a new kind of leadership challenge where I was sort of, I don't know, leading from my bedroom quarantine, if you will which was not a comfortable place to be. And I was also scared for my own safety. And then I had such guilt about possibly having infected my family, my colleagues, and the other patients who I was seeing. So, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of that wrapped up. I think what helped me kind of get out of my COVID doldrums, if you will, was work. You know, so I did not spend any of that bedroom quarantine, you know, binging on... Netflix or anything like that. In fact, I don't think I even turned on the TV once. I kept a diary, but what really helped me was what the heck can I do in my bedroom
1: quarantine that can help out my team? Her options were limited, but even as much of the hospital staff was inundated with COVID patients, others were left with much less to do. It dawned on me that this
0: was not business as usual. Elective surgeries had stopped by governor ordinance, and there were pockets of people who were desperate
1: to help. Doctors and nurses on the COVID wards had a lot of patients, and not a lot of time. They were
0: absolutely overwhelmed caring for patients. I knew that they were really struggling calling the families of the patients who they were seeing. So I thought, OK, how are we going to do this? You know, there's a problem. Patients, families are desperate for information. And the teams have absolutely no capacity to call. So, OK, thought for a second. Who is free right now? Who, who has the capacity to work?
1: Elective surgeries were suspended. Other specialists who did not provide direct COVID care also had their schedules reduced, shifted to telehealth, or paused. Medical students were sent home from the hospital for their own safety and attended classes remotely. Many people who had been really busy at the hospital before COVID hit were all suddenly sidelined during the biggest health crisis of the last 100 years.
0: In no time at all, I got in touch with the head of radiology, and in literally half a day, I had 65 attending radiologists wanting and desperate to be able to call families and to get into this program that we called NYU Family Connect. And our vision was that the family members of every single COVID-19 patient would receive a proactive daily call from medical professionals who could give a, a real update on what was happening from the team's perspective. In addition to those 65 wonderful radiologists... I was able to get in touch with the medical students, and they were desperate to help. So in no time flat, we had over 100 medical students matched up with these 65 radiologists. And then the dermatologists came, the urologists came, the orthopedic surgeons came, the pathologists came, all these groups of people we had about 150 attending physicians from all different specialties come and want to help. So what I did was I paired up one medical student with one attending physician. And we trained these groups of people about how to look at the medical record because this was all going to be a remote activity. What pieces of information were important to extract from the medical chart? And these were things like stuff that patients' families want to know. How much oxygen is this patient on? Did this person have a fever? What is the medical plan? Like, are they getting all these different therapies? Are they going to move to a less intense unit? Are they about to go home? You know, remember, radiologists and pathologists don't always talk to patients, but they wanted to learn. And this is why this medical center is so outstanding. So they did a chart review, number one. And then, number two, we thought it was so important that they give accurate information, we created a system whereby they would call into rounds so they could hear what was happening with every patient. And the team was more than happy to give them the information because then they were able to focus on patient care and the Family Connect team was able to make the calls to the families.
3: My name is Jennifer Stein. and I am a professor of dermatology at NYU Langone, and I was a member of the Family Connect program from the beginning of the pandemic for about six weeks.
2: My name is Dr. Syed Hoda from NYU's Department of Pathology. I'm the director of Bone and Soft Tissue Pathology here, and I was uh, involved with Family Connect in the late winter of 2020.
1: When Dr. Stein and Dr. Hoda volunteered for Family Connect, they had little in common as physicians. Dr. Stein is part of a busy practice at NYU, interfacing with patients all day long. As a pathologist, Dr. Hoda is more behind the scenes, helping his clinical colleagues diagnose and treat patients by studying tissue samples.
2: When the lockdown started, our work had gone drastically downhill in terms of volume as the surgical rooms closed. So I decided to send some emails out trying to volunteer myself for different roles in the hospital, in the ICU, or in the internal medicine floors or wherever, ER. And my vice chair had received an email from Dr. Hawkman that she was starting a new project to help families out. I was instantly sold. I recall sitting in my car the first day before we started this service, nervous as if I'm being like launched to Mars.
1: Dr. Stein wasn't sure what to expect from Family Connect either, but she knew what to expect from its leader.
3: When I was a medical
1: student, I always loved and admired
3: Kathy Hockman. I learned so much from her. I learned how to do a physical exam of a patient from Kathy Hockman. And when I heard about the pandemic, as the pandemic was getting more and more serious, I was thinking about her and about so many colleagues and friends that I had in the medicine department. I wanted to help very much. And I didn't know how I could actually make a difference.
1: Once it became clear how they could help, doctors Hoda and Stein did their best to serve patients and their loved ones through Family Connect. In many ways, it was unlike anything either of them had done before. Often
2: you'd get the same families and same patients for several days in a row. So you ended up forming kind of a bond with some of the family people that you'd talk to every day. And usually it was the same family member who wanted to talk and continue the conversation. So one one of the patients, the husband was in the hospital, the wife was at home and he was not doing well, but when he was getting a bit more awake, he was very confused. And I was told by the ICU staff that he was very disoriented and felt kind of agitated. And so I remember speaking to the wife and she said that he needs his glasses. I don't think he has his glasses. As somebody who wears glasses, I know that if I don't have my glasses, I would probably go wild. I don't think I would be able to function properly. And I started imagining if I was in that room and I didn't have my glasses and I was just, you know, coming awake from being kind of like asleep for a while, I would be really agitated as well. So it became really a primary goal to get him these glasses. It wasn't so easy because it was such a chaotic time then in the ICU to to make sure that these pair of glasses can get to him. So... She was very, very grateful of the effort it took to get it done. I am a very, very subspecialized type of doctor. There's less than 100 or so practicing in the U.S. who train the way I am. I don't interact the way Dr. Hawkman interacts day to day with all types of patients. Like, I don't. And we all had a deep appreciation of the small details that you kind of take for granted. Like in my work day to day, I am not considering, does this patient have glasses. But Dr. Hockman's project created a group of people who were from all different expertises, who kind of joined at a baseline of where we needed to be to function and to help people. We are doctors first before we are specialists. But before that, we're actually people first before we're even doctors.
3: there was so much conflicting information and patients' family members were hearing about various treatment options and they wanted everything possible done for their family members, of course. Sometimes there weren't great answers to be able to share with the family members, which of course was very stressful, but that was just part of the nature of this pandemic. And as... A dermatologist, sometimes I didn't know the answer. So what I would tell them is I would learn about it. I would try to get the information from the healthcare workers who are taking care of their family members and get back to them. I mean, that's the nature of medicine, is that your everyday is somebody's worst day of their life. I would say one of the most difficult phone calls I had was there was a patient who was new to the unit. And the team actually was feeling very optimistic about him. I always wanted to be able to give good news. And you want to give people something to cling to, some hope to cling to when they're feeling devastated and they're so worried about their family member. So I remember I called the patient's family and I said, don't worry if if team says he's the healthiest patient in the ICU, they're not that worried about him. It's going to be okay. Okay. And this was right before I went to sleep. And the next morning, I opened up the chart and I saw he was intubated and things looked really bad. I remember being so afraid to call the family because I knew they were going to say, you said everything was okay. How did this happen? And I think that was an important lesson, which is trying to figure out the right amount of hope to give a family, but not promising them too much, just because it's easier to give people good news than bad news. And I think that's a very difficult balance. I think the pandemic has forced us to be a lot more agile. I think it's forced us to be prepared for change, It's forced us to be prepared for unexpected experiences. When something comes up that you weren't planning, to be able to look at the situation the way it is right now, to pull in all the information that you have available to you right now and just make the best decision that you can. And to keep reevaluating those decisions as the environment around you is changing, as the information you're getting is changing, to be able to change your plan quickly, and keep your eye on patient care and safety to make the right decisions.
1: When ideas are really good, they can seem obvious in retrospect. Of course it made sense for medical students and specialists to pitch in, however, wherever, whenever. Harnessing their knowledge to help patients and families stay connected led to the launch of Family Connect. What might not be so obvious is how to organize all of those people into a system that could work efficiently. Dr. Hockman has built her career around developing and refining systems inside of a hospital. And that's exactly what she did, even when she was temporarily not allowed inside that hospital. And while COVID was unpredictable at every turn, there was one thing that never surprised Dr. Hawkman.
0: I have to say, it was really heartwarming to see the waves of people come and sign up for this program. And clamor, I got emails from people, please let me into this program. At the end of the day, I wasn't surprised because this is NYU. That's what we do. But it was just so encouraging and loving to see it.
1: None of us would have ever wished this pandemic into our lives. It has been a rolling, devastating human tragedy that has also been a catalyst for innovation. Medicine has advanced, sometimes at warp speed, in enormous, profound ways, and slowly in smaller ones. For a few weeks in the spring of 2020, at the first peak of the first wave and the first COVID epicenter in the United States, a group of doctors and medical students got together and made a difference in the lives of COVID patients and their loved ones. It was a gift to these families during a terrifying time. It was also an opportunity to learn and grow.
0: Some of the medical students spent hours on the phone with families They got really deep into the family connection. Multiple, multiple calls a day. We did a little survey for the medical students who had participated in the program. And the grand majority described this initiative as one that was a transforming initiative in their medical education. And that was a very proud moment for me because I know how tough the medical students are when it comes to their medical education and what they feel is valuable and this was a real life experience and they really needed to get it right and they crushed it they were outstanding they took it so seriously they delivered very timely information and if they didn't know the answer they would clarify that with the team and get back to the family so the families were very appreciative of that as well And not only were the families appreciative, we also surveyed the frontline teams. They were incredibly appreciative because then that took the burden off of them when it came to calling the families, yet they knew that the families were being informed. So overall, it was sort of a win-win-win for everybody.
1: In medicine, in a pandemic, you take the wins where you can get them. It's been two years since the pandemic began, since Dr. Katherine Hockman got COVID, since she organized Family Connect. The program was brief but powerful and a shining example of how and why she leads. Ernest Hemingway said that people are often quote, strong at the broken places. Hospitals can be too that resident who bravely exposed his own mistake led to a major change and improvement in how NYU Langone Health cares for its patients. The horrors of the pandemic created a situation where new and seasoned healthcare professionals could work together, become better communicators, and help families through a frightening time.
0: You know, showing a vulnerability is a strength. I think you have to be willing to fail and to fail royally like really mess it up and really put yourself out there and do your best and just flunk and you will learn and grow much more than if you sort of stayed in your safe zone.
1: Vital Signs is a co-production of NYU Langone Health and Sirius XM. The podcast is produced by Jim Bilodeau, Julie Canfer, and Keith King, with sound design by Jim Bilodeau and writing from Julie Canfer. SiriusXM's XM's executive producer is Beth Amin, in partnership with Allison Clare and Jim Mandler of NYU Langone Health. Don't miss a single episode of Vital Signs, and subscribe for free wherever you listen to podcasts. To hear more from the world-renowned doctors at NYU Langone Health, tune to Doctor Radio on SiriusXM Channel 110, or listen anytime on the SXM app. To get in touch with our production team, email vitalsigns at siriusxm.com. For the Vital Signs Podcast, I'm Rose Reed. Join us next time as we bring you the stories of medicine made personal.